Daimler announces level three autonomous cars and divorces itself from reality. Details next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website for that. I do love Daimler, parent of the disobedient but somewhat attractive child we know today as Mercedes-Benz. Old faithful, the vaunted three-pronged suppository. You know you want one. You probably saw Daimler's claims this week about the introduction of level three autonomy. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Level three, okay, is where the so-called driver might as well be brain dead up to 60 k's an hour. Car takes over, does the lot, no oversight required. Big Bad Suppository says the lawyers are just working out the details with the government and they'll roll it out forthwith. Apparently, Level 3 is going to be unlocked on the new S-Class after the regulatory imprimatur is transferred in Germany from Angola, and then they might hide these features in lesser mercs behind a paywall, perhaps. Like, swipe black Amex here if you want all of that unlocked kind of thing. Maybe a monthly subscription basis. Nobody really knows yet. This is all because Avarice knows no bounds in the Daimler boardroom, but of course. Let us not forget that Daimler just promised properly fail-safe autonomous cars up to 60 k's an hour, but the company can't actually get a right-drive, all-wheel-drive Mercedes-Benz not to crab like the worst pre-production prototype ever whenever you're not actually going dead ahead. So there's that. I'm just saying that for technical perspective, in terms of, you know, degree of difficulty. They won't even admit that their cars do that in right-hand drive markets, and when they slip up and do admit it, they claim it's not actually a defect, but rather an quote-unquote operational characteristic. So, are these really the kinds of dudes and dudettes that you want to see putting robot cars out there on the roads around the rest of us? I know I have a view on that. Anyway, I was all set to pat them on the back here like, well done dudes, level three, substantial technical achievement. Electric Jesus is gonna have a fit. So that's nice. But then, okay, Ola Kalinius, who is approximately and metaphorically to Daimler what Ron Jeremy was to porn in the 1990s, he said this. If we are successful with the legal framework for level three, which we predict we will be, then we will be the first one to plant a flag on the moon in terms of doing level three. Did he just compare level three autonomy to Apollo? With these kinds of vehicles, we're shooting for the moon. I suppose just putting a flag on the moon's not actually that hard, but you do have to get it there first. Getting it there is an intrinsic part of the activity, after all, and that is properly difficult. It's the biggest part of the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Think you'd agree. Getting a flag to the moon certainly puts level three autonomy in perspective. I've actually met one of the 12 men who walked on the moon, David Scott, commander of Apollo 15. 
seventh man to walk on the moon. The first man to drive the lunar rover on the moon. And that's why I was there, okay? I wrote a feature on the most outrageous off-road adventure ever which he obviously conducted. They went over the horizon. So I go, dude, there's no magnetic field on the moon. How did you navigate back? And he goes, well, we followed our tracks. Of course, we certainly hope they were our tracks. And then he goes, do you want to drive the rover? And I'm seeing NASA all access pass and I'm going, yes. And he goes, all you've got to do is get yourself there. We left the keys under the seat. David Scott, ladies and gentlemen, total hero, hashtag respect. And a good bloke, not up himself either, amazingly enough, given what he and his colleagues achieved. And as a result of this interview feature, whatever, meeting the hero, I got kind of interested in Apollo because I remembered them wheeling out the old black and white TV while I was a little kid in school. And even then, like five years old, it was kind of obvious to me that this was a big deal. I know exactly what I was doing when Neil Armstrong took one small step, and most people my age or older do. So... To Ola Kalinius from Daimler, I would say, dude, this bullshit comparison is offensive to the greatest technical achievement in human history. Come on. I'm no snowflake and I don't want him cancelled. I actually find it quite entertaining when these master's degree bigwigs throw their credibility under the bus without reservation by being so staggeringly out of touch with the facts. Just pointing out... It's a completely crass comparison, which is also divorced from reality. So let us compare the two achievements with a little beer garden rocket science, shall we? Yes. I mean, Mr. Kalanius opened this door. It's only therefore polite for us to step through, surely. Our vehicles are now platforms of digital progress, and we operate as a software company with more flexibility, and adapting with agility to new developments and customer requirements. Mr. Kalanius is highly educated. He has master's degrees in international management and finance and accounting, so technically not stupid, but still a bean counter. Another bean counter in charge, which is just what the automotive industry needs. And isn't it funny, when shit goes seriously sideways, that they never get all the bean counters, the lawyers and the politicians together in a room to solve the friggin' problem. I'm quite confident Mission Control at Apollo had very few international management, finance and accounting types in charge of those consoles. Although, in fairness, I didn't really see the need to investigate that. To get that flag on the moon, okay, 15 men in five manned Apollo missions, including the crew of Apollo 11, had to climb to the top of a ginormous glorified bomb called a Saturn V rocket. And of course, significant sacrifices were previously made. The first three Apollo astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee, they died tragically in a fire on the ground during a test. And that flag would not be up there without them. Saturn V is the most brain-bending machine ever made in the domain of outright fucking awesomeness. The rocket is 110 metres high. 
It dwarfs the electric Jesus Falcon Heavy. It's taller than a football field is long. Here's the one that took Apollo 11 to the moon. And what you're looking at now is three and a half tons of thrust. And it burns like that for nearly three minutes. It's outrageous. With two more stages for Earth orbit insertion and translunar injection, just waiting to go off in the green room. The Saturn V rocket program cost was the equivalent of 50 billion US dollars in today's dollars, which is roughly nine times the annual profit of Daimler. So proportionality fail right there, Mr. Kalanius. Easy for a bean counter to conclude that not even Daimler could afford to put a flag on the moon today, no matter how badly it wanted to. If you ride a Saturn V rocket and get into Earth orbit without being blown to atoms, which itself is a friggin' miracle, but actually there's never been a complete failure of a Saturn V rocket, so take that, electric Jesus. To be fair, there was one partial failure on Apollo 6, which was unmanned. Anyway, when you're up there above Earth, to get to the moon, you have to burn for translunar injection, and you have to be doing about 40,000 kilometres per hour, according to Oxford reference. And this is ballpark, the fastest that a human being has ever travelled relative to Earth. The record there, if you're interested, is Apollo 10 on re-entry at 39,897 k's an hour, which is kind of fast, but admittedly, it's not the same thing as taking your hands off the wheel of an S-Class doing... 55. On the way to the moon, you have to dodge the more lethal radiation concentrations within the Van Allen radiation belts, and then you have to achieve lunar orbit insertion, which is a fairly precise activity with a low failure tolerance, rather a long way from home. And then you have to separate the LEM from the command module and, of course, land on the friggin' moon with the flag. And landing, in Neil Armstrong's case, meant taking manual control towards the end of the flight to avoid the pre-selected landing zone, which was problematically strewn with boulders, and flying manually to a safer location and making it there with the spacecraft screaming at him that he had just 25 seconds of remaining fuel before abort would be mandatory. Hashtag hero. Once settled on the surface, the, the dust cleared immediately, and we had an excellent view of the area surrounding the limb. The limb was in, in good shape and uh, exhibited no damage from uh, the landing or the descent. It's a picture of the ladder with the uh, well-known plaque uh, on the primary strut. Think of the most outrageously excellent sporting performance that you've ever seen. That perfect goal, you know, the hole-in-one, whatever. The most perfect sporting performance. I'd suggest that that was nothing compared to this. So take a look at the tremendous humility of a real hero, Neil Armstrong. It was our pleasure to have participated in one great adventure. It's an adventure that took place not just in the month of July, but rather one that took place in the last decade. I just see it uh, as a beginning, uh, not just this flight, but in 
this program, which has really been a very short piece of human history, an instant in history. If anyone had an excuse for hubris, it would be Neil Armstrong. This is the first guy to fly to and land on a different celestial body. And yet, look at him. To me, he seems abundantly different to the kinds of dudes like Mr. Colonius piloting multinational car makers from fiasco to fiasco today. And I'm really not, therefore, so sure that we've come all that far in half a century. Neil Armstrong's landing on the moon is one of the most elite performances by anyone ever. He's also the poster boy for anti-autonomy by virtue of taking control from the computer and getting it right by doing it manually. So a staggeringly poor comparison there from Mr. Colanius, I'd suggest. And then when you're on the moon, okay, to get out onto the actual surface with the flag, you have to depressurize your landing module and wear a spacesuit to protect yourself from the moon's savage environment, which, if you are exposed to it, will render you unconscious in about 15 seconds and then kill you in another 60. And the nearest hospital is, of course, 400,000 kilometers away. And no, you don't actually explode or freeze when exposed to the vacuum of space. That's just in Hollywood. You simply pass out in about 15 seconds because of hypoxia. David Scott told me that it's not a bad way to go, apparently. However, it is about 125 degrees C on the surface of the moon during the day, inconveniently, and minus 173 at night. So you get brazed and then snap frozen, kind of like a TV dinner in the most remote and extreme supermarket ever. And once you put up the flag, you have to strap yourself to another somewhat smaller bomb and leave the moon and find the command module, which is, well, it's up there somewhere. And then you have to dock. According to Neil Armstrong, Leaving the moon is kind of exciting and a relief in its own way. And the ascent was a great pleasure. It was very smooth. Uh, we were very, very <laughs> pleased to have that engine light up. <laughs> and with all of that flag erecting out of the way, you just need to burn for trans-Earth injection, and then you need to get the re-entry dynamics just Goldilocks. You better pay attention. It's kind of important because if you hit the atmosphere at too shallow an angle, you're going to bounce off inconveniently. And if the angle of attack is too steep, you'll be crushed on re-entry or the spacecraft will fall apart and burn it and you up. The total thermal load on Apollo 11, at least the command module heat shield, was about four trillion joules on re-entry, which is about the same amount of energy, albeit kinetic energy, as a level three autonomous S-class chugging down the autobahn at roughly, can you guess? 7,000 kilometers an hour. So in Apollo, you're doing about 40,000 kilometers an hour on re-entry. You've been weightless and you're about to pull six or seven Gs if you get that angle right. I've pulled five Gs flying aerobatic maneuvers a few times and six and a bit as a passenger, but only for a few seconds each time. And I have to say, it's quite memorable. 
on the re-entry angles, okay, 7.3 degrees was the 12G undershoot boundary for Apollo. If you attack the atmosphere steeper than 7.3 degrees at the entry interface, or shallower than 5.7 degrees, you're probably going to die. Pretty simple proposition, right? So the window for success, meaning getting home for dinner or not, is 1.6 degrees. All you have to do is thread a two and a half ton spacecraft that you can't see through the eye of a needle that you can't see at 40,000 Ks an hour with the whole friggin' world watching using computer technology from the Jurassic. But admittedly, it's not quite the same thing as taking your hands off the wheel of an S-Class at 60. With these kinds of vehicles, we're shooting for the moon. And that's a crucial part of innovation. So to Daimler's high-level compulsive masturbators comparing their as-yet non-achievement of level 3 autonomy to the outrageous historic success of Apollo, I would say, well done dudes. Very few communication strategies would have informed the public quite as efficiently just how magnificently out of touch with the facts and drenched in hubris you lot really are. Don't get me wrong either, level 3 autonomy is a solid technical achievement in the automotive domain. It really is a good thing if it works and nobody dies. But in other news, right-hand drive, all-wheel drive Benzes are still crabbing the shit out of the pavement and scrubbing out their tyres at a suburb near you. Hashtag Straya. So there's that. Level 3 is awesome, okay? It's properly awesome, but it's sure as shit not rocket science. 